Okay, so friends, uh, we are continuing uh, today in a new kind of short sermon series. Um, if you've been with us for the past two months, then you know we've just ended our other short sermon series through a part of the book of Revelation. And we thought that from now until Sunday, December 24th, it'd be edifying and, and good for us to go through the beginning of Luke's gospel and just kind of trace the event of Jesus' birth, and then we're going to get to the actual birth uh, event on December 24th, okay? I think that'll help us uh, just kind of understand Jesus' birth story through Luke's eyes. But before we start, I, I do want to kind of get on the same page uh, with us all, and I assume that most of us here know in the Bible there are four different accounts of Jesus' life, right? And uh, we all know that's called the Gospels. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we can't get into detail about who wrote each one and, and why it was written, but I think it's good for us to at least here understand that each one of them was written by a different person, and it was written for a different purpose. And the one we're studying today, the Gospel of Luke, was written by this guy named Luke, who was a doctor or physician. We see that later in the book of Acts. And Luke originally wrote this account of Jesus' birth primarily, mainly, for one person named Theophilus. Okay, take a look at me in verse 3, and in, in pronounced there in your, in your liturgies. Luke said, It seemed good to me also, having followed all, all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Okay? Who's Theophilus? Well, Theophilus was most likely a Gentile, meaning a non-Jewish person, who kind of knew about Jesus' story. He's heard about it. He kind of felt compelled toward it. But he saw tons of Christians getting persecuted and killed and kind of uh, ostracized from their communities around him. And he saw that and he said, you know what? Maybe give me like a minute to think about this. Because <laughs> it's, it's costly to follow Christ, apparently. So he wanted to think about it for a bit more. He wasn't too sure that he wanted to really jump into this whole Jesus thing. Why? Because he knew that if he really believed Jesus is who he claims to be, the course of his whole life will change. And he, he's thinking about that. You know, let me see if this really is true. So Luke, who knew him, wanted to help him process all this, and he did a ton of research. He put together this account of Jesus' life for him in this document that we today call the Gospel of Luke. All this so that he can help his doubting friends see that it's all true, and that Jesus is worth it, and that whatever this world makes you pay for following him, he's worth it. And perhaps there are some of us here in this room today who might be experiencing the same struggle as Theophilus, right? Perhaps there's a huge cost before your life right now if you were to follow Jesus. And like Theophilus, it is moments like this that make us think, isn't it? Is this whole thing even real? Is it worth me paying whatever it is I'm about to pay? Is it true? Well, Let's see what Luke has to say about it. This is God's word. It's a long one, so stick with me as I read it all. Taken from Luke chapter 1, verse 1 to 25. This is the word of God. 
Inasmuch as many, as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they're both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And while whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you do not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute, and when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and, f and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Thus says the Lord, and this is a long one, and I got feedback that my sermon last week was a little short, so I'm making it up today. It'll be a little bit longer. It just, it's, it's just a long passage, okay? So stick with me as we go through it. I think it'll be worth it. There are at least four things that I believe Luke is trying to show Theophilus here about God's redemption story through Jesus, okay? Four things. First, it happened historically. It's a reasonable faith. Second, it begins humbly. It's an inclusive faith. Third, it interrupts profoundly. It's a life-changing faith. And four, it delivers gloriously. It's a sure faith, okay? It happened historically, it begins humbly, it interrupts profoundly, and it delivers gloriously. Let's start with the first point. Luke's trying to show Theophilus here that this really did happen historically. It's a reasonable faith. Okay, before I actually get into the text itself, Okay, into verses one to four. I do have to lay down this foundation. It'll just be a few minutes, but I think it'll be worth it at the end, okay? So, when most people reject 
the validity of the gospel, right? The Bible's good news that God truly did come down to us in the person of Jesus so that on the cross, he could trade places with sinners like me and pay for my sins and save me for himself, okay? When, when most people have objections to that story, this is what we usually hear, why? They say maybe something like this, look, Tez, it's a great story and I really wish I could believe it, I really do. But I just have not yet heard an airtight argument, airtight evidence that kind of empirically proves this story. And therefore, I, I don't know if I can believe it. Now, let me, let me first say that it's good you just don't blindly believe in everything that you hear, okay? It's good that you want reason for it. But let's think a little bit more critically about this. Let me ask you, which view of the world, out of all the options out there, which view of the world can you really prove empirically? Empirically, I mean with your five senses, right? What you see, touch, smell, you know. What, what can you prove? Can you prove Christianity empirically? Absolutely not. Okay, how about Catholicism? Can you prove Catholicism empirically? No. Can you prove Buddhism empirically? No. Can you prove atheism empirically? Is there ever, no. You know, and you get where I'm going with this. And at this point, people go, you know what, Tess, that's why I'm an agnostic, right? That's why um, I say, since truth is unknowable, I'm just gonna doubt everything. Well, thing is, you can't empirically prove that either. You can't empirically prove the statement that truth is unknowable, you, you know? And we, we get to this confusion because when we think about it, there's actually no view of the world out there that have this so-called airtight, undisputed empirical evidence that backs them up. It doesn't exist. In fact, let me continue on just to kind of hone this in a bit more. In fact, no decision I want to present to you that we make in life, any decision we make in life, have airtight evidence that kind of backs it up. And I've used this example before, but I'll repeat it again because I think it's helpful for the conversation. For example, okay, you'd have to raise your hand, but I'm curious, who here has ever purchased coffee beans from like an expensive exotic place outside of Indonesia? Like, I don't know, Colombia or somewhere, you know? <laughs> okay, okay, yes, some of you have done that and you paid premium price for those beans because the package says Colombia. But did you actually check whether or not that's true? Do you have empirical evidence? You know, did you check the importation documents of those coffee beans? You didn't. Let's say you're a bit crazy and you did. And you checked it, right? How do you know that document is actually authentic? Did you check the company that prints this document actually uses that kind of A4 paper to print, you know? Okay, let's say that you did do that and it is authentic. How do you know that the barista didn't in the back room decide to switch the coffee beans so he can sell it for himself as a side hustle. How do you know that didn't happen? You don't. You don't have empirical evidence to make that purchase. I'll stop there, because I think, I believe you know where I'm getting at. Do you know why it is you were able to make that expensive coffee bean purchase decision? It's not because you had empirical evidence that airtight, you know, backed you up, 
It's because along the way, you made multiple faith leaps. You made multiple leaps of faith. You said, hmm, I've heard this brand before. A lot of people vouch for it. I've seen it advertised. The salesman looks professional. The barista looks like he knows what I'm talking about or she knows what she's talking about. The place looks legitimate. The packaging looks nice. And based, of, based on all of those reasons, you then took a leap of faith to actually believe that the beans in that package was worth that price, okay? It is impossible to delete faith altogether from any decision you make in life. Every decision you make in life is a mix of faith and reason. So if you say, I won't believe in Christianity until someone shows me undisputed airtight empirical evidence for it, then you'll never believe. In fact, if you put that same burden of proof to everything else in your life, you'll end up doing nothing. No decision in life is made that way. What Luke is trying to do here, he's not trying to give Theophilus empirical evidence that would delete his need for faith. That's impossible. Rather, what Luke's trying to do, he's trying to give Theophilus tons of data to show him that this faith is a very reasonable faith. Look at verses one to two. Let's get to the text. What did Luke say? Luke said, Theophilus, I met with tons of eyewitnesses. That's what he said. Meaning, he used primary sources. Any academic paper worth its salt will tell you to use what? Primary sources. It's gonna ask you to interact with primary sources, not what other people say about the source, but with the source itself, whether that's an interview or that's reading a document in its original language. Luke is saying, I'm using primary sources here. I did that. Second, not only did I use primary sources, he said, there are tons of other ministers ministering the same word, he continues in verse two. He's saying tons of people are saying the same thing everywhere. So not only does my account use primary sources, it's also peer-reviewed. <laughs> other people are saying it too. And historians would agree that this Gospel of Luke, this account, it was actually written about 25 to 40 years after Jesus died on the cross. And if Luke were to be lying about all this, okay, if he was just making this whole thing up, that's too short of a time frame for a lie of this magnitude to work. <coughs> Let's just say, I'll give you an example. 40 years from now, okay, uh, what is it? This is Sunday, November 26th. Right? Let's say 40 years from now, I get up on stage or I write a document and I say this, that hey everyone, 40 years from now, in November 26, 2023, a criminal was sentenced to death three days before this. But then after that, he resurrected. And he appeared to a bunch of people and then he ended up in Punchak before a bunch of other people saw him ascend to heaven. That happened today. If I were to say that, Evan here, who in this story is still alive, hopefully, Evan here would say, hmm, maybe it's time for us to change Tez's medication because he's going a little crazy because that didn't happen and no one else saw that happening because <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. It's too short of a time frame to be making something like this up and it actually working. Most excellent Theophilus, Luke is saying here, I'm using primary sources, it's peer-reviewed, and it happened like not long ago. 
It really happened in the days of Herod, he continues in verse 5, who was an actual historical figure. He was ruler of Judea, uh, assigned by uh, Mark Anthony, who was um, a Roman senate at the time, okay? It happened. I'm not trying to mythologize you here. I'm talking about something that happened in history. Check around. It began in the days of Herod, he said, and it began with the most humble beginnings. He just to our second point. It begins humbly. Second point. It all started, Luke continues here, with lifelessness and hopelessness. Where do we see that? Let's, let's actually jump into the story. Let's look at verse five. In the days of King Herod, he says, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. And Zechariah was married to this woman named Elizabeth, who was a descendant of Aaron. And if you don't know who Aaron is, Aaron is like this. He was Moses' right-hand man in the Old Testament. He's like the OG priest, okay? Big deal. So you have Zechariah, a priest, married to Elizabeth, who's the descendant of Aaron. So picture her the most put-together church couple ever, okay? Always on time, always, you know, dressed well, whatever, right? Always worshipful, decent people, comes from a long list of pastors, you know, does full-time ministry, just good people. But yet, Luke says, Elizabeth was barren, verse 7 says, meaning she had no kids. And she started advancing years. They were too old. They were past childbearing years. The point is that this story started with no hope for life. There was no hope. But this lack of hope for a new life wasn't just a comment on the state of Elizabeth's womb. It was also a comment on the state of God's people as a whole. Okay, and where do we see that? By this whole temple worship scene that we just read. Okay, let me just give you a bit more of the background here. So back then in Jerusalem, there would be, there's a temple and there would be two worship services every single day in that temple. Can you imagine that? Coming to MNC twice a day, every day, okay? One during sunrise and the other one at sundown. And one of the activities that they would do in these worship services is that at some point of the service, the priest would enter into the inner part of the temple, right, inside of the temple, offer sacrifices, um, at the altar as commanded in the Old Testament, and then everyone else who'd be at the courtyard of the temple area outside, could be up to thousands of people, they'd be praying this prayer, and it's recorded in an old Jewish worship document. They'd be praying this prayer that goes like this. May the merciful God, may the merciful God enter the holy place and accept with favor the offering of his people. May the merciful God enter the holy place and accept with favor the offering of his people. And they just repeat this prayer over and over and over is a prayer for deliverance, that God would be pleased with the sacrificial sin animal offering and that he would save his people. And they'd keep praying that until the priest comes out of the altar room and closes the service with a blessing, with a blessing that actually many churches, including ours, use still today, taking from Numbers chapter six, verse 24 to 25. It's the benediction that we do every single Sunday. The Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious unto you, the Lord lift his countenance upon you and, and give you peace. And every, twice a day, every day that would happen, over and over and over and over again, except for this day when Zechariah led the worship. This time, when Zechariah came back out, what happened to him? He was 
mute, verse 22 says. He couldn't speak. He was unable to give the blessing. So in this particular worship service, the prayer of deliverance that the people prayed had no answer from God. Was this an offering acceptable? Did we mess up? And that's the start of the story. God's redemption story started with no hope of new life and without any word of blessing from God. Man, Tez, that is so dark. I know. It's dark. But that's exactly what Theophilus needed to see. Theophilus, I know you're scared. You look around you and you see a bunch of Christians being persecuted, ostracized from their communities, from their families. You see a bunch of Christians even being killed. And you're scared. And you're thinking to yourself, am I really cut out for this Christian life? Like it seems like it's a big thing. It seems like it's gonna cost me a lot. And nothing's even happened to me yet, and I'm already freaking out. Can I do this? Dear Theophilus, Luke is saying here, if you feel weak and scared and hopeless, that's exactly where the story starts. That's exactly where it begins with an acknowledgement of, of weakness and doubt and lifelessness and fear and hopelessness, you are exactly where you need to be. But if you keep going, the story might just change your life, which brings us to the third point. It interrupts profoundly. It's a life-changing faith. Okay, so we continue the story and we get to kind of the meat of this story, right? And it's when God visited Zechariah through a delegate angel who shared this good news with Zechariah. And this good news disrupted his whole life at the most inconvenient point for him. What do I mean? So earlier, okay, we saw how Zechariah was the priest in charge of this particular worship service. But take a look at how Zechariah got chosen. Go to verse nine. In verse nine, it says there that Zechariah was chosen, chosen by the casting of what? Of lots. What's a lot? It's like a lottery. Okay, so he won the lottery, and he was in charge of leading uh, the service back then. Now, why did they have to cast lots for this position? Because every priest back then really, really, really wanted to lead the worship service. It was like an, uh, an honorable position and thing to do. And since they had about 18,000 active priests in Jerusalem at the time, they needed to take turns for who leads the service. How? By casting lots. And if the lot happened to fall on you, your name is then taken out of the lottery altogether and you don't ever, ever get to lead the service again. Every priest only gets to do it once in his lifetime. It's that big of a thing. This was a once in a lifetime opportunity for Zechariah. He's been waiting his whole life for this moment to give the blessing. And finally, at his old age, he got it. He got it. It was his time, and it was precisely at this time that God interrupted his life with the gospel and messed it all up. I could just picture Zechariah, you know, for years and years, getting the benediction right, just rehearsing it, you know. Uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. No, no, no. The Lord bless you and keep you. And the Lord bless you and keep you. And we just kind of make sure that it sounds right. He's practicing over and over again for years. 
And right before he was supposed to do it, God interrupted his life with the good news of the gospel and it, and it messed it all up. So inconvenient. Look, Theophilus, Luke saying here, I know what you're thinking. I know you're thinking, maybe I'll do this whole Jesus thing later in life. You know, maybe like when I don't get killed for it, I might be available then. Like I'll just wait a little bit. And you know, we see some of that thinking even today, right? You know, let me just, let me commit to this whole Jesus thing later in life. While I'm still young, let me get my fun out of the way. And then when I'm old and tired, I'll do this whole Jesus thing and I'll get serious about it. And Luke is saying here, if, if that's how you're thinking about all this, that means you don't get it at all. Like at all. You believe a God beyond time exists, but at the same time you believe he works on your schedule? You don't get to tell God when you're ready. No one gets to tell God anything. He will make your spiritually dead heart beat whenever he wants. There is no religious deed or ritual you can do to rush him. And there is no word of repose you can say to delay him. The gospel interrupted Zachariah's life at the most inconvenient time for him, but also it interrupted his life because of how good of a news it was. I mean, think about this. This is the best news he ever heard. Look at verse 11 to 12. Let's continue in this story. The angel said, your prayers have been heard. Always great to hear, as long as they're good prayers, right? But the question is, which prayer? Which prayer? Was it the years of unanswered prayers for a child? Or was it the prayer that he and everyone else was currently doing, as we just read, in the temple, for mercy and God's deliverance? Which prayer? And the answer is, yes. It's both. You'll have a child, the angel said. His name will be Ioannin, John in English. But this child is no normal child. He will be the most dedicated servant of God ever, which is the whole point of the long list of things that John the Baptist will do in verses 14 to 17, okay? Those are just a long list of uh, things that Old Testament priests and prophets would do. All it's saying that John the Baptist is gonna do that but to the extreme. He's gonna really do it well. And because of that, by his life, he's gonna prepare a way for the Lord, for the Messiah to finally come. So he's not the Messiah, he's just gonna prepare a way for the, for the Lord. That is the redemption story you're gonna be part of, Zechariah. And Zechariah thought, that is too good to be true. I mean, I'm gonna have a kid, and also this kid's gonna answer the prayers that we're praying right now that God's gonna deliver his people, this will change everything. Everything. This is not just something I go to on a Sunday morning. This will change my life. This will change my marriage. This will change the way I parent. This will change my job. This will change my whole country. Like a lot's gonna change. So Zechariah says, 
is this for real? Are you, is this really happening? <laughs> That's what he said. And at this point, I think Luke is trying to just go beyond Theophilus's head and he's going straight to his heart. How so? I believe he's trying to say this. Look, Theophilus, let's cut to the chase, okay? Let's just, let's get to, let's get to it. At the end of the day, sure, lack of evidence contributes to your hesitance. Sure, it does. Sure, you, your own uncertainty about whether or not you can hack the Christian life, that also makes you hesitant to kind of like jump in and believe this whole thing. Okay, but might it be true, Theophilus, that if we, if we boil it down and we cut to the chase, at the end of the day, the main thing that's making you postpone is simply just because you don't want your life to change. You don't want to change. You hate interruptions in life. It's inconvenient. And since you know this will be the biggest life interruption that you would ever experience, you're postponing it for as long as you can. Might that be the reason? But it really happened. It really, I don't know what to tell you. It happened. And I know you're scared of what'll happen to your life if you believe that it did. But that's where the story starts. You're where you need to be, fear, weakness, acknowledgement of your own doubt. That's exactly where the story starts. And it's okay you're a little scared because this gospel will interrupt your life. You probably should be a bit scared, you know. I promise you that. It'll, it'll mess your life up in a good way. But, last point. He's worth it. He's worth it. God's redemption story will deliver gloriously. Let's go to the last point and end this narrative. So, Zechariah hears this news. Zechariah, the priest, mind you, in verse 18, said to the angel, how can I know that this is true? You see, God's redemption story started with a womb that lacked life, with a people that lacked a blessing, and with a priest who lacked faith. How much hopeless can it be? How can I know this is true? And to that, the angel responded, I'm Gabriel. <laughs> I know God, I'm pretty close with God, that's what he says in the next sentence. Like an angel is currently telling you this is gonna happen, and you want more proof, okay. You'll be mute. <laughs> that there's your sign, that's a lack of faith, you'll be mute. Like how do you not believe? You'll be mute, not forever, just until John the Baptist is born. Which is what happened. Zechariah came out of the temple and the people wondering why he took so long and he was unable to give the blessing. And there are thousands of people who's been waiting for the blessing, who've been praying for it, waiting for it, and he couldn't do it. He went back home after a week of service. That's how long his, uh, uh, the, the service would be. So he stayed in the temple, took care of it for a week, and then after his rotation is done, he would go back home, and then, lo and behold, it all came true. Elizabeth conceived a child, and she said in verse 25, thus the Lord 
has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. My shame, my reproach is gone, she said. Because back then, unfortunately, there was a lot of stigmas about infertility. My shame is gone. But there's a double meaning here throughout this whole story. I'll have to point this out. I know this adds a bit of complexity, but stick with me. We have to point this out. Throughout the whole story, Luke's trying to emphasize that God fulfilled both the communal needs of the people for salvation, that's what they prayed for, right? But he also answered and fulfilled this couple's personal needs, you know, for, for a child, for honor and all that. Because this child, and there's a double meaning, because this child will also not only take away Elizabeth's reproach, he will also point to the one who will take away everyone's reproach, everyone's shame. So God fulfills his big picture plan also by providing for his people personally. And, and Theophilus, Luke is saying here, look, I know it's scary. I know like to jump both feet in to this old Jesus thing and really give your life to it, like really give your life to it. It's scary. There's gonna be a huge cost to it. But do you see what God did here? He didn't just leave Zachariah and Elizabeth high and dry, you know, suffering for the gospel and just like he didn't care for them. No, he's not that kind of God. He takes care of his people communally and personally. He fulfilled his redemption plan, not just at the cost of his people, which sometimes that is the case, but also he does it through personally providing for his people. It's okay. The world is going to take away some things from you. If you follow Jesus, the world's going to take away some things from you. That's a given. But he's not the kind of God that's just going to leave you high and dry. He'll, he'll take care of you. He'll love you. He'll care for you. He will. He will. But how can I know for sure? Theophilus might be thinking at this point. Promises, promises. How can I know for sure that this God will come through? Well, I, I find this really interesting. And Theophilus might have not gotten it immediately from the first chapter of Luke's account. But if you read the whole story, Luke's gospel here starts off with what? Luke's gospel starts off with a faithless priest who was unable to bless God's people, right? That's how it started. But do you know how it ends? If you skip to the last chapter of Luke's gospel, which is chapter 25, here's the last thing you see Jesus doing in Luke's account. Let me read it to you. <clears throat> this is Luke, Luke chapter 24, verse 51. After Jesus did everything he did in the whole gospel, he lifted up his hands and he blessed the people. The Gospel of Luke started with a faithless priest who was unable to bless the people's prayer for deliverance. And it ended with a faithful high priest who finally delivered this 24 chapter long awaited blessing that they didn't receive. But the difference is this high priest at the end of the story, Jesus, he didn't earn the right to bless God's people by sacrificing an animal on an altar. You know what the Bible said he had to sacrifice? You know what the Bible said he had to offer up in order to attain the blessing of God for his people? He had to offer up his own body 
on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Let me read to you Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 to 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for a single time a sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Most excellent Theophilus, Luke is writing here. I can't give you an airtight argument. I can't give you airtight evidence to dispel all of your doubts and fears. I can't. But I can give you an airtight person. As a pastor once described Jesus. I can give you an airtight person. And his name is Jesus. And he really lived in the days of Herod. And he came not for the strong, oh no. He came for weak people like you and me who realize how scared and full of doubt we really are. And it's not up to you when this man will interrupt your life with the gospel. <laughs> it's not. But when it, if it happens, it'll also be very inconvenient. Sorry, sorry, not sorry. Your life will be turned upside down and you will have no idea how it happened. And it will cost you, it will cost you. But I promise you this, he will love you. My goodness, will he love you. His promises are true. He is who he claims he is, and he came to do what he said he would do. How can you know, Theophilus? How can you be sure? Because not long ago, a group of weak, scared, and faithless people, just like you and me, pointed at a cross where this man died on. And then they pointed at an empty tomb where this man should have been. And these people went from weakness to power. They went from fear to courage. They went from not wanting to have anything to do with this Jesus to giving their whole life for him so that all may see that he is Lord. This happened. Tarry no longer, Theophilus. He's real. Postpone no longer. He's worth it. That was Luke's word to Theophilus. Words, perhaps, that some of us here today might have needed to hear as well.